The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Sutton to a prestigious Bangladeshi family after her mother gained political asylum in the UK. Her grandfather was the founding father of Bangladesh and her aunt is the current Prime Minister. After joining the Labour Party at 16, she studied first at UCL, followed by completing a Master's at King's College London. My guest then worked in a variety of political roles, such as Amnesty International and for MPs, such as Sadiq Khan. Eventually, she became the first Bangladeshi councillor on Camden Council and went on to be MP for Hampstead and Kilburn. At the time, the most marginal seat in the country. No longer. My guest was prominent in campaigning for the return of Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe, as well as opposing Brexit. She gained national media attention when she delayed the birth of her son for a critical parliamentary vote. Now she serves as Shadow Economic Secretary to the Treasury in Keir Starmer's team. My guest today is Tulip Sadiq. Tulip, thank you for joining today. Uh, we begin with, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? I had a really happy childhood. Um, I was born in London. I guess I was quite from quite an unusual immigrant family in that my mother had come here in the 1970s as a political asylum seeker. She actually settled in the constituency that I now represent in Westminster, which she always comments on. My father was doing um, a PhD there. So I guess they weren't traditional economic migrants. And I now look back and I realize that my parents were actually going against the grain quite a lot because... The other Bangladeshi families around us were very intent on assimilating. So they spoke to their children in English, even if it was broken English. They were very um, focused on trying to make sure that their children fit in and that they were British. Was my parents always spoke to us in Bangladesh, in Bengali, always. They would always speak to us in Bengali. All three siblings, we read, write and sing Bengali songs, despite the fact that we basically weren't born in Bangladesh. But they really wanted us to be citizens of the world. So when we were at school, we spoke English, we celebrated Christmas, we celebrated Diwali, but we also knew we were of Bangladeshi heritage. And my mum used to tell the story about how people would laugh at her and say, your children are going to fall behind at school because you're not speaking to them in English. There's no point in being patriotic if you want them to fit in. Um, And basically, my parents had a strong sense of, you know where your heritage is, but it's not at odds of being Londoner, a Londoner or British. So I guess it was quite unusual like that, but I was really happy. Um, At the age of nine, we had a huge family tragedy in which my father had a massive stroke and he lost his ability to talk, walk, and it was because of a wrong medical treatment that happened. So life really changed then. And effectively, we were raised by a single mother because my my father was so ill. So that changed things. Yeah, that must have been very difficult. It really was. And did mean you kind of had to help your mother uh, grow up a bit faster? Yeah, I think we had to grow up a bit faster. I took on a lot more responsibility because my sister is eight years younger than me. So she was only one when the whole thing happened. Um, just to explain, we were briefly in Brunei because my father was teaching at the university for a short stint there. And that's when he got really, really sick. And it was because the hospitals in Brunei performed a wrong treatment on him. So you can imagine for me, 
the value of public services and the NHS. It's something I really, it was ingrained in me that this was something important in my life. And I um, had to take a lot of responsibility looking after my younger sister. So that taught me responsibility. It also really teaches you to be tough if you go through something like that. When you watch one of your parents completely change from being a normal dad to someone who couldn't walk, couldn't talk. We practically had to feed him. So yeah, it taught me a lot. But, you know, I still, in answer to your original question, I did have a very happy childhood. And my parents always made sure we had every opportunity possible. Um, now, I mentioned the introduction, obviously, uh, your grandfather, the founding father of Bangladesh, uh, your aunt is the current prime minister. Growing up, were you aware of your political heritage very strongly? Um, did you feel as though you were from a very political family? And how did it manifest itself? I mean, it's not very often that I quote Dan Hodges, but I will say something. <laughs> Dan Hodges once said um, that people keep saying to him, how does it feel to, like yeah. to have a famous mother? And he said, well, I've never had any other mother. And that's kind of how I feel. Like, I've never had any other aunt. I've never come from any other family. So I grew up discussing politics at the dinner table from when I was very young. There's no doubts about that. But to be honest, Katie, in Bangladesh, people discuss politics a lot anyway. There was a survey done which showed that children as young as four and five could name the prime minister and the opposition leader. Compared that to the West, where children as young as four and five could name Ronald McDonald, but uh, no one else. So politics plays an everyday part of your life. So you do discuss it quite a lot. But what I would say is growing up in a political family and uh, my grandfather, he he paid a very high price for being a public servant. So he he was killed. My mom was only 18. And that's why she came here as a political asylum seeker. So for our family, the value of public service and being a public servant is sort of ingrained in the family. And I did grow up in a very socialist household. It was always about public services, um, looking out for others. And no one thinks anything when I message the family group and say, I'm sorry, I can't come to, I don't know, mum's birthday because there's been a fire in Belsize Park and I need to go sort that out. Because so, as weird as it sounds, it's sort of country before family you know, <laughs> with, with us, which is unusual for other families. But if your constituents need you, that's where you're meant to be. And therefore, I suppose um, that that's the family mantra. Um, doesn't mean when you're growing up, you did you just have a sense you were going to end up uh, in politics, or, or at least in a role which um, I suppose is you know one of those society type roles where you, where you are putting it in that way. I think that's right. I think we. I probably did think that I would end up in some sort of role, whether it would definitely be politics. I wasn't sure. Like my brother works for the UN, my sister works for the Children's Society, so we've all it ended up. There is a real up. theme. <laughs> there is a real theme. The, I suppose we were brought up in a family where you were taught that you were here because you needed to pay back somehow. You needed to pay back society somehow, but. For me, when I first decided to join the Labour Party, which was a natural home for me, and because of the NHS and how it helped my father um, recover, I told my mother I wanted to be an MP and she wasn't very happy because of the life she had led and because she had lost her parents at such a young age because of politics. She did try and dissuade me and she was like, have you not considered you know, the UN or Amnesty International where you've worked. So there was definitely an element of dissuading. And I said to her, it's not the same. It's not the same as in Bangladesh. Here we're protected as MPs. That was in 2015. And then in 2016, obviously what happened to Joe Cox, my friend Joe Cox, 
my mother was, has been very anxious and still remains so. Really so ever since, yeah. Yeah, ever since. So I, there's a lot of reassurance and I'm having to message her constantly. If she doesn't hear from me for a few hours, there'll be a message saying, are you okay? Or sometimes she'll say, I'm watching the chamber and I can't see you in the chamber. Where are you? So I'll be like, I don't sit in the chamber all day. So um, definitely there was a sense of I would be doing something front-facing, yeah. And uh, you go into study English literature at UCL. Were you a particularly studious um, student or were you quite social? Did you get involved with student politics? I actually didn't get involved with student politics, but at, as in like at university, but I did intern for Una King when I was at university. It was a chance encounter. I bumped into her. I asked if she needed some help. One of two black women in, in parliament, she said yes. And I went and interned for her while I was doing my degree, but I didn't actually get involved in labor students, which... I don't know if you think it was a lucky escape. Who knows? Who knows what it was? But I didn't actually get involved. I read a lot and I loved it. I had some of the best professors in the world. I had John Sutherland. And actually, at the moment, I'm a judge for the Women's Prize for Fiction. So I've continued my love of reading. And I How did go out a lot. How many do you have to read for that? I've read far too I've many. I've just been a judge for the well, Journalism Prize. And it's a lot of articles, but at books is like a new level. It's nearly 70. But I've had a year to do it. So. I was going to say, because you're also quite busy with your job, one would imagine. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, audio books, books on the plane. <laughs> Whenever you can read, you read. But I went out a lot as well. So I enjoyed, enjoyed my life at UCL. Um, now, after graduating, um, you work for several nonprofits. So I suppose you're kind of, we skipped a bit ahead in terms of your mother's advice to you. Um, but you're trying to find your feet. And I suppose it, it's, it's in doing that that you start to think you'll ha- affect more change in politics or how does it come back? Yeah, I think my internship with Una really sort of brought home to me that you can change things. And I had the opportunity to do so. I also really enjoyed it as well. Una was so busy. She was really on top of her game and she represented a constituency that was quite deprived in Bethnal Green and Bow. So I did a lot of casework for her and I realized, well, actually, you can affect change. You can um, represent someone's housing needs and they actually get a replacement home sometimes, not every single time. And it got me more and more interested. So that was probably part of it. It was also the sense of, you know, as cheesy as it sounds, it is a social justice and just thinking, can I do something that makes society more equal? And you mentioned, obviously, your seat is where your uh, mother first came ended up, you know, settling and coming to. Um, But did you, when you decide to be a candidate, I mean, we're currently seeing at the moment, I think because it's the first time, or at least we never know, but the first time we're not appearing to have a snap election (laughs) (laughs) since the past two, so 2017, 2019. So candidate selection is a bit more organized. Uh, Lots of stories from that. So how, how do you approach it? Do you know where you wanted to be an MP for? Do you get much of a say? Um, is it cutthroat, etc.? There was never any doubt where I wanted to be an MP. Uh, so I went to school in my constituency. I grew up in the constituency. I volunteered in the local Oxfam in the constituency. All my friends were around there. So yeah. I didn't want to go for anywhere else. And I guess I was lucky because Glenda Jackson decided she wanted to step down. It was the most marginal seat in the country. She had narrowly clung on against Chris Philp, who now is an MP, um, by 42 votes. So it wasn't a dead set that I was going to win the seat, but I just couldn't imagine standing anywhere else. So that's where I stood. The selection process, it's brutal. There's no doubts about that. And people ask me, um, how did you survive it? The one point I made to them is that my selection process was the same week I got married. So... (laughs) 
<laughs> what really happened was. first? The wedding? The wedding the on the Saturday. Oh, so, and then the following Saturday was a selection so process. D- did you have a honeymoon in between? or No, definitely no. not. I... <laughs> On the morning of my wedding, I was rehearsing my speech for this selection rather than my wedding vows. And I, in the lead up, I sent my sister, who, you know, you need this network when you're a woman in politics. My sister was part of my very strong network. I had to send her to the food tasting because I literally could not take off the time to go um, and do it. So the selection was brutal. The timing was even worse. But And, but the, and then at that point, I suppose your husband... It- your husband knew the plan, right? <laughs> I think he knew the plan. Whether he knew it was going to be as crazy as it was, I'm, I'm not sure. But he knew the plan. I, from the very first date, when I knew I was going to marry him, I essentially said to him, you know, I want to be a politician. I wasn't a politician at that point. Whether he knew it was going to become such a whirlwind with two kids and three elections within five years, it's too late now, anyway, for him to back out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Locked in. Locked in. <laughs> Um, so you enter parliament and obviously you'd worked with quite a few different politicians before you get there. So I, I suppose you have a sense of how things are run. But did much surprise you when you actually are the elected politician? When I started out, so that was over 20 years ago, um, interning for Una King, parliament was very different. For a start, we were in government and also um, parliament didn't look the way it does now. So I really stuck out like a sore thumb. There weren't that many women they definitely weren't that many women of color. And believe it or not, sounds crazy. I actually got asked a couple of times if I was Keith Vaz's daughter because people just didn't see people who looked like me around parliament. So it's massively changed is the first thing I'd say. What did you say when they asked you? What do you think I said? No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> That's not my dad. <laughs> but he, I, um, the parliament has changed. But in opposition, life was very different. And the first couple of years were very different for us in opposition because obviously change of leader, snap elections. The discipline I saw in the MPs when I worked for them was very different from when I actually became an MP. We kind of did our own thing initially. There wasn't that much unity. There wasn't that much discipline. The whips office weren't as stern. Whereas whereas when I interned and worked for MPs when we were in government, it was a different story. You were on a tight leash. So I suppose in a way you could, you have a chance to be a bit more independent, but the con is you're not close to power and it's much harder. And, and you are a politician who actually uh, has done lots in terms of some cross-party work too, but it is just very uphill, right? If you think It is. And you sort of question like, what difference am I making when in opposition? Because you can't affect change as easily. And that's why the campaign for my constituent, Nazneen Zagari Ratcliffe, was so important to me because I actually managed to make a difference and affect some change in opposition, which everyone will tell you is an uphill battle. So that's why um, I spent so much time on that. You're right in that you can be a bit more independent and some of the things I've done around flexible working, some of the work that I've tried to do on detention centres for um, people who've come into the country, maybe all of that wouldn't have been possible. But on the other hand, that sense of unity was missing in the first couple of years. Now, we'll talk more about Nazan and um, Zagari Ratcliffe shortly. Um, but before we do, um, you're, so you enter Parliament in 2015. And as you say, 
your poor husband. <laughs> because around that time, that's when politics starts to get quite shaky. And of course, 2017 election, 2019 election, um, Brexit. I mean, we could talk about that period and just never end this podcast. And, yep. you know, we're recording on a Friday, have a lock in. Um, but in the interest of staying on time, um, I, from that period, of course, you have the EU referendum, you campaign for Remain, I and did. also you, your constituency heavily batch remain Um, and then we enter a period of all these different Brexit votes um, order paper being taken over and lots of MPs doing things that uh, you know going against what some perhaps the line is at some point we don't even know what the line is Um, but you make the news um, for a specific vote and um, delaying something to to make it can you tell listeners what it was sure (laughs) So, as you say, I was a staunch Remainer. My constituents, 87% of them voted to remain. I have 22,000 EU nationals in my constituency. It's one of the highest in the country. Um, They are my friends and my neighbours, and I really wanted to remain in the European Union. What happened during that time is I was pregnant with my second child, and just before I was due to give birth, we had narrowly won one of the votes because at the time, remember, Theresa May had a very small majority amongst her MPs. Lots of them were voting with us or we had decided to get together and topple some of the votes, whichever way you want to call it. And we had just narrowly won one of the Brexit votes. Because I had gestational diabetes, the consultant at the Royal Free emailed me to say, you need to have a C-section, a planned C-section. And it happened to be on the date of another very important vote on Brexit. Now, I emailed the consultant back without even thinking and said, would it be okay if we did it um, two days later? Because there's a really important Brexit vote on the day you're suggesting, um, on the 15th, I think you're suggesting, of January. And he wrote back and he said, you're really lucky I'm a Remainer. (laughs) so you know I was lucky with that consultant Um, so anyway would have been a Brexiteer but I'm going to surprise you with this vote exactly so I decided to delay the birth of my son for a closer relationship with Europe and um, you know it's hard to know why change happens but before that we hadn't had proxy voting in parliament and there's very strange mechanisms that existed like nodding through where they would look at you, and the whips would look at each other, and then you'd be nodded through, or you were paired. But none of those actually registered your vote. And I didn't see why, as a female MP, I had to make a choice between my job, my responsibility to my constituents, and my family. I really didn't see why those should be at odds with each other, which is why I took that decision. It's not a decision I took lightly, but I really felt it was an important um, move to make. And it's hard, like I said, it's hard to know why change happens. But after that, proxy vote was introduced. And the result of that specific vote, did it remind me on all the Brexit wars? Did it go the way you wanted in the end? Or? Um, I don't think we did win it in the end, actually. It yeah. didn't go. My everlasting memory of that vote is me heavily pregnant in a wheelchair with steroids and Theresa May coming over to me, bless her, to say, are you OK? Which I actually thought. This poor woman was ending her career, as we thought, although she's kind of bounced back now. And she actually made time to come over and ask me how I was. 
and ask me about my gestational diabetes because she's a diabetic herself. So I do, I do remember that and I do, I do appreciate it. And the proxy voting, as you say, how long do you think things have come now in terms of the modernization of parliament? Um, now you have two children. Yes. So do you, do you feel as though your job is one that does actually allow you to balance things a bit more than perhaps a few years ago? I think the proxy voting probably has helped people, even though it's not for the whole period of time you would expect. It probably has helped parents who've had children. I think the problem with Parliament is these late nights, which means you effectively miss out on putting your children to bed, um, reading them a bedtime story. And my children feel very frustrated about the fact that they don't really see me um, properly half the week, even though as a London MP, it's easier for me than being a Northern MP. But I don't think Parliament has fully modernised but I guess I would make the point by saying that if you're a woman in any job, whether it's journalism, whether it's being a doctor, um, balancing children and work is difficult. And I don't think it's just MPs. I do, however, feel that we should modernize parliament and at least not having to physically be there to vote because it's not just about children. It's also about people who are very sick sometimes and they're still coming in because a vote is important. I just think if we were a bit more forward looking and you could vote from home or make some provisions, life would be a lot easier. Yeah, do, do you think, I mean, because lots of uh, MPs and uh, I think particularly the Tories side think that it's quite important to be there in person. Would your preferred um, system be one where if you have a very specific reason you can't make it and you have the option or actually most people can choose and it's a bit more of a revolution in that sense? I think if you have a specific reason for not being there, but also if you have a really important constituency matter, I'm not really sure why you should make the choice between, oh, I want to be at this very important constituency meeting about cladding or, you know, a violent thing that happened because we have, we've had a couple of stabbings in, in Camden. You have to be there. Oh, actually, but I do want to register my vote on free school meals. I mean, why should you have to choose in this day and age when the technology exists? I feel they should be... A, a method of doing that. But unfortunately, not everyone agrees with me, including Jacob Rees-Mogg. Uh, now, I want to talk about, obviously, uh, going back, going to your comments about how when you first arrived, there was a bit of a less, I suppose, sense of togetherness. And obviously, we now have Keir Starmer and it, things were a bit different. Before we do, just to go back to Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe. Now, um, I think every listener on the podcast will pretty much know who we're talking about here, your constituent who travelled to Iran and then was detained and stuck there for a very long time. How many foreign secretaries? I dealt with five. Yeah, we've got five foreign secretaries. And then um, when Liz Truss was foreign secretary, Boris Johnson eventually managed to get back to the UK. Now, you're a huge campaigner in this, um, kept going at it. What happened when you first heard? Did you have the family come to you when you in a way to explain what happens to the constituency MP in such a scenario. Sure. So, I mean, it sounds like my whole career has somehow been um, entangled with my children, but it really was <laughs> when I had my first child in 2016. And because there was no proper maternity leave in Parliament, I said to Ollie, who was my office manager, you know, I'll just be off for the six weeks of my emergency C-section. I'll be back to work, but, you know, try and handle things while I'm away. There was no proper system in place. I think three or four days into um, giving birth and recovering from quite a bad infection after having my emergency C-section, I had a phone call from Ollie saying, look, I really wouldn't call normally, but there's a very distraught man who's saying his wife has been detained in Iran. So what should we do about this? They are constituents. 
And I said, well, send him to my house because there's nothing else I can do. And Richard Radcliffe turned up to my house and I rang the Labour Party and I got put through to Jeremy Corbyn's office, who was leader at the time. And Jeremy said to me, what's going on? I said, look, there's this man whose wife has been detained in Iran. And he said, okay, where are you meeting him? I said, oh, in my living room because I've got my daughter and she's breastfeeding. I'm not going to leave. He said, okay, I'm coming over. So the first meeting we had, which I will not forget, is me breastfeeding my daughter with Jeremy Corbyn on one side and Richard Radcliffe on the other side of me in my living room with me taking notes on the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. And what Richard Radcliffe said to me is that his wife had gone on holiday to Iran with their 18-month-old daughter to visit her parents, Gabriella's grandparents. And on the way back, she'd been detained at the airport and he had no idea where she was. But the crucial bit of that is that he said the Foreign Office had very strongly advised him to stay quiet and not to make it public and he was going against foreign office advice. So, it, you know, I hadn't been an MP very long at that point. I'd only been an MP for a year. And he was essentially saying to me, let's go against foreign office advice. That was really difficult for me because I didn't know whether it was some unhinged, you know, husband and father talking and saying, let's disregard this and we'll go public. And in the end, agonizing over it for a long time, I decided to go with what he was saying because it was his wife and we went public with it. It turned out to be the right advice and the right path to take, but it was definitely very difficult because going against foreign office advice is not something as a politician I would normally do. So we decided to go public with it. I raised it in parliament constantly with five foreign secretaries, three prime ministers, constantly brought it up, Westminster debates, um, knocked on the door of number 10, handed in petitions and protested as much as we could and got into the media as much as we could because we found out very early on that the reason Nazneen had been taken is because we as a country owed Iran £400 million as a historic debt. And did you face pressure from the government when you were making that difficult decision of do do we go against foreign office advice or not? Did you face pressure to stay to not do that, to stay quiet? Constantly. So uh, one of the foreign, one of the many foreign secretaries said to me that every time I mentioned Nazneen in the chamber or in the media, I was adding 10 years to her prison sentence because Iran would be punishing me. That was an alarming thought, considering that I had countless times mentioned her. Another foreign secretary chased down my personal number to call me and say that I'm Nazneen's never coming out because I was making such a song and dance about it. So I was constantly getting pushback about going public with this. But I think the most frustrating bit was that none of the foreign secretaries would acknowledge the link between the debt and Nazneen's imprisonment. They would constantly say it has nothing to do with that. Whereas Nazneen had been told by the people who had captured her that this is the reason we're holding you. We're holding you because your country won't pay the 400 million pound and effectively you're a hostage. And they would not acknowledge that. The breakthrough came through when Jeremy Hunt became foreign secretary. It was the first time where in a meeting with a, with a foreign secretary, he acknowledged this 400 million pounds. And you spoke about cross-party working earlier on. And I actually worked really closely with Jeremy Hunt to try and secure Nazneen's release. When he acknowledged it and he started pushing to pay this debt, which we legitimately owned. There's been a court case. There's no dispute about the fact that we owe the money. 
I mean, obviously, they shouldn't be holding Nazneen because of the money, but we did have to, regardless, pay the money at some point. In the end, Liz Trust made the payment, but it was actually Jeremy Hunt who put all the mechanisms in place. And I suppose, so a lot of your campaign was obviously aimed at uh, calling out Iran and the Iranian government, but also actually at putting pressure on the UK government because of the payment. Yes, absolutely. So a lot of the campaign was focused around how will you pay the debt? What are the means of paying the debt? Because it's quite complicated because of all the sanctions and the way you pay the money back. Um, And it was also about shaming the government, in all honesty, into saying we can go around the world talking about following the rule of law and being in human rights, but if you don't actually pay the money you rightfully owe, it seems like the right thing to do. Like It's something your mum would tell you, this is the right thing to do. You owe someone money, pay it back. But it was shaming, it was shining a light on Nazanin's treatment in Iran and also ultimately bringing her back to her young daughter. And Nazanin is back with her young daughter, Anna Richard. Um, do, you, do you see them much? They're still your constituents. They are still my constituents. Um, and I remember when I last saw Gabriella, and I do see them, um, I don't see them every day or anything, but I do see them around the constituency. Gabriella did say with a big smile to me, Mummy's home now. And I was thinking, oh, thank God for that. I mean, I, my conscience was not... <laughs> clear until she came home. I would have felt so guilty if I had somehow lost the next election and Nazneen still wasn't home, but she's home now. So a big relief. Um, now, nearing the end of the podcast, so just uh, going, I suppose, to Keir Starmer and, and the present day. Um, now, we have gone through a very turbulent time. You mentioned Jeremy Corbyn, you're talking about, obviously, Nazneen Sagari Ratcliffe. And that's interesting that you, you worked with him on that. And also, you did put your name down, I think, uh, to get him on the ballot, even though you personally backed Andy Burnham. How do you feel about, I suppose, the way that Jeremy Corbyn is, has been treated, I suppose, since new leadership has come in? In the sense, he's not currently a Labour candidate. Is that tricky given you've clearly had some good interactions with him? Personally, he has supported me when I received a lot of abuse. Jeremy supported me. But if you're asking me if he was a good leader, I think we can pretty much all agree he wasn't. We faced one of the worst election defeats of our lifetimes when he was leader. So obviously he shouldn't have been in that role. I think the deeper point here is about anti-Semitism and the fact that I got into a situation where the Jewish community, who have always supported me in Hampstead, we have a big Jewish community, felt that the Labour Party was no longer a safe space. That was really difficult for me. For someone like me who grew up in the Jewish community, I went to Friday night dinners with my neighbor, Mrs. Harari, all the time. My friends and neighbors um, were Jewish. And they were suddenly saying to me, we don't feel safe because of the Labour Party. I mean, it's a really difficult thing to accept. So I think if Jeremy still doesn't recognize that and still doesn't see it, he can't be part of the Labour movement because one of the reasons I joined the Labour Party is because it welcomes everyone of every colour and stripes. If he doesn't realise that, he can't be part of our movement. Now, we, we don't have a clock which goes back in time, but I suppose if if we did, would you still put him on the ballot now or do you regret that decision? The reason I put him on the ballot is because it was to broaden the debate. Even Margaret Beckett did it as well. Quite a few people had to do it to get it there. So you, you, yeah. it clearly wasn't, sorry, just you. I, no, I no, just it wasn't just me. Time, I, mean, yeah. I mean, I put him on the ballot. And just to say, um, I don't know if you know this, Katie, he looked at me in the eye and said, I do not want to be leader. He said that to me. He said, I want to broaden the debate and put forward my lefty views on the ballot. I don't want to be leader. I mean, when someone tells you they don't want to be leader and it looks very unlikely that they're going to be leader... You put them on the ballot in the same way other people put Diane Abbott on the ballot before. But 
obviously I didn't want him to be leader because I voted for Andy Burnham and hindsight is a great thing if I had known all of that then my my decision would have been different I mean hindsight would would also make this podcast very boring probably if all I guess (laughs) had hindsight (laughs) fair enough (laughs) so uh, lots of problems that one Um, now you're now shadow economic secretary to the treasury and that means so obviously Keir Starmer's in charge but Rachel Reeves I suppose is your day-to-day boss that's right Um, and she's how do you find her as a boss I'm not just saying this because I want to stay on her team. I have to say, I've worked with lots of women in the Labour Party and it can be difficult. It has been. Maybe that's another podcast, Katie, where I'll tell you about all the details of the women I've worked for who haven't been or worked with on the teams. But Rachel is someone, she has no problem giving you credit. So if you've actually achieved something, so I've been doing a lot of work on green finance. Rachel is not someone who has a fragile ego and has to feel that she has to take credit. She will very openly say, Tulip came up with this and you know that she deserves the credit. And I think that's really the hallmark of quite a good boss, someone who doesn't feel that they have to steal the work that you've done for a start. She drives you hard, as you've probably seen, but she's determined and she wants to be in number 11 and she's making that happen. So she runs a very efficient team. Um, I've, I've loved being on the team, I have to say, on Trader Treasury. Have you seen her write many Christmas cards? Because she recently told us how, well, we, we interviewed her for The Spectator and we was up and try to remember the exact figure. 4,000? I think it's around 4,000. Yeah, yeah it's... Think- I did see her write 400 of them, yeah. 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 I think she has to just fit it in early on in the year, just get it like, because all, all ink. But she's ridiculously efficient. That's the problem. Okay. It's an ad- <laughs> that's, that, that's what they should do for the campaign. Absolutely. And, and just, just second last question, you mentioned green finance. And of course, one of the things that's happened recently is the 28 billion uh, pledge from 2021 to um, uh, put, you know, 28 billion a year in green investment in this in the in that scheme, um, it's been watered down slightly in the sense that Rachel Reeves has now said that probably wouldn't happen in the first couple of years because the situation has changed. Um, but she aims to have it by the end of the first Parliament in a Labour government. H- how do you think Labour can balance that mix of ultimately wanting change and to be radical, but also what Rachel Reeves is clearly thinking is the most important thing, which is just um, looking as though your trust on the economy and not, and not looking risky. I think it just goes back to the last couple of elections. So we weren't trusted on the economy because we had these manifesto pledges, which didn't amount to anything. There were too many commitments. Um, the spending commitments didn't add up. And in Shadow Treasury, and Rachel and I are very, very conscious of the fact that every policy we announce has got to be fully costed and that we're very conscious that we will be inheriting an, an economy that is potentially going to be disastrous, like on its knees. So making lots of commitments we then can't deliver isn't something we want to do. We want to have a more sophisticated approach to the elections and a more sophisticated approach to the manifesto. So we are fully committed, as you say, um, to our pledge. But we've just got to be a bit more realistic because the economy doesn't look like it's going to allow us to do that. And I think it's very responsible to admit that and say, we will still deliver. We just want to look at what we're inheriting. So one of the things I'm working on quite a lot is net zero. And because I'm a shadow city minister, the city will play a big part in achieving net zero as well. What I'm not going to do is go around the city and I meet the stakeholders a lot and say, within the first week, we are going to have the biggest sustained growth in the G7 and we're going to reach net zero. These things are unrealistic. And I think 
part of these sweeping um, sort of commitments is what got us into the mess in the first place. And that's why we lost all these elections. We are being responsible parliamentarians. And I think there should be some credit for that. I think the public will also really appreciate the fact that we're doing that. And finally, the question we always come to at the end of this podcast, which is the worst advice you've ever been given. When I stood in Hampson and Kilburn, a lot of people, some in the Labour Party, some outside the Labour Party, said to me, I wouldn't win Hampson and Kilburn with a Muslim last name because they said to me that the Jewish community in Hampstead won't vote for a woman with a Muslim last name. And I said to them, for someone who grew up in the Jewish community, don't underestimate the Jewish community. They don't vote based on last names. They vote for the person who they think will work for them and represent them. I heard this many times, this piece of advice, that you should stand somewhere else. That was the first thing. The second thing I heard is you should take your husband's last name, which is not a Muslim last name. And I really fought hard against that. And I made sure that on the ballot paper, it said my name, which is Tulip Sadiq. And guess what? I won the most marginal seat in the country with a Muslim last name. Now it doesn't look very marginal. 14,000. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your time today. 